Now shall we read together in Mark chapter 13, 13th chapter of Mark, <clears throat> from verse 14, from verse 14, I'm reading the Revised Standard Version, Mark 13 from verse 14. But when you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything away. And let him who is in the field not turn back to take his mantle. And alas for those who are with child, and for those who give suck in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation which God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not shortened the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Tonight we come to these verses from 14 to 23, which I have entitled, The Sign, The Sign of the End Time and the Coming of Christ. The Sign of the End Time and the Coming of Christ. You will remember that the disciples had asked John and Peter James and Andrew had come privately to the Lord Jesus Christ where he was sitting high up on the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple and the city and had said to him in verse um, 4 tell us when will this be and what will be the sign when these things are all to be accomplished not when will be the signs but when will be the sign and he started off by telling them what did not constitute the sign, but were only the first birth pangs ushering in the close of the age. Now, having told them what did not constitute the sign of the close of the age and his coming, he now begins to tell them clearly what would constitute that sign. So we read verse 14. But 
when you see. So clear, so simple. But when you see. Don't be misled by all the other things. They are not the sign of the close of the age. They are only the initial birth pangs, the onset of labor. Now, when you see so-and-so, you will know the time's come. So tonight we come to what is the sign. When they saw the abomination of desolation set up in the temple, marking the beginning of a period of intense tribulation and turmoil, they would know that the end time had started. That would be the sign of the end and the coming of Christ. Verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation, or the Revised Standard Version, the desolating sacrilege. When you see the desolating sacrilege, or abomination of desolation, set up where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those that are in Judea flee to the mountains. Verse 19. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will be. So that's the sign. Now if you turn back to Matthew and chapter 24, Matthew 24 and verse 15, this is the way Matthew um, put it. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, he is much more specific than uh, Mark. Mark says where it ought not to be. But he meant the same thing. It's in the temple. So when they saw this abomination of desolation, whatever that means, set up in the temple, in the holy place, where it ought not to be, then they knew that the close of the age was on them. The coming of Christ was almost on them. What is the abomination of desolation? Now, it is rather interesting that a number of the versions have tried to um, uh, translate this in various ways. Moffat calls it dramatically, the appalling horror. When you see the appalling horror, that's how he puts it. Um, our older versions and the revised version, the American Standard Version, all call it the abomination of desolation. The revised Standard Version calls it the desolating sacrilege. It's a very, very hard phrase. Now, it is very interesting that the New English Bible and J.B. Phillips, the very modern versions, have all gone back to the old and have simply rendered it abomination of desolation. The point is we've got to go back into the Word to understand exactly what was the abomination of desolation. Something which God looked upon as an abomination which laid everything waste. 
which desolated everything. The phrase first occurs in Daniel, and we find it in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. Chapter 9, verse 27. And he shall make a firm covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and upon the wing of abomination shall come one that maketh desolate. He and even unto the full end, and that determined, shall wrath be poured out upon the desolate. Then again, chapter 11, <coughs> verse 31. And forces shall stand on his part, and they shall profane the sanctuary, even the fortress, and shall take away the continual burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that maketh desolate. Chapter 12, and verse 11. And from the time that the continual burnt offering shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Well, now, that may not make any of you wiser. But the fact is, you at least know that the first time this phrase occurs is in uh, Daniel. And by the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was a very well-known phrase indeed. People may not have fully understood what it meant, but they all knew that the abomination of desolation was something that would come at the end before the Messiah appeared. It was used in Daniel in prophecies referring to a man called Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, king of of Syria. And it was first used referring to him. And then, even in Daniel, beyond him to an event at the end of the age, the appearance of the final Antichrist. Now, it is interesting that the Lord Jesus uses this phrase, abomination of desolation, in exactly the same way. He uses it first of something and someone that would appear at the point of the temple and city's destruction. And then looking through that, down the course of the age, he uses it referring to the appearance of the final Antichrist at the end. Now, who was Antiochus Epiphanes? In 167 BC, this gentleman erected an altar and an idol to Zeus on the brazen altar in the temple and sacrificed pigs on it. This marked a period of intense and terrible tribulation which lasted roughly about seven years, of which the last three and a half were the most severe and terrible. The whole land ran with blood from end to end. He thus became the symbol and the archetype 
of the Antichrist in Scripture and was known as the abomination of desolation, or as Muffet puts it, the appalling horror. Now I'll just read to you a few things that, came, that we said some years ago in our studies on the intertestamental period, the period between the two testaments. It's uh, just uh, a page, but I want you to listen very carefully to this summary of the policies and person of Antiochus Epiphanes, because he is taken always in Scripture as the symbol of Antichrist. Now listen to it all. Antiochus Epiphanes was a remarkable personality and character, affable, genial, and generally well-liked, particularly by the more cultured. He was liked in Rome, and won the esteem and affection of Athens by his democratic ways and by his many gifts to the city, which included temples and public, other public buildings. They made him, in Athens, an honorary citizen and master of the mint. He was also a good soldier and an able administrator. When he became king of Syria, as Antiochus IV, his avowed policy was to unify all the different nations and races and religions in his kingdom through the dissemination of, the Greek, of Greek culture and Greek thought. He was not a fanatical religionist, but an enthusiastic believer in Hellenic culture and civilization with a deep concern for the unity and social well-being and development of his kingdom. He longed that he might banish war and intertribal inter strife by uniting all the tribes and nations within his kingdom. Through Hellenism, he believed that not only could the Greek empire be unified, but the whole Mediterranean and Asia. The Jews, therefore, especially those in Palestine, with their utter distinctiveness, both in conduct, behavior, and dress, set apart in every way, even when they settled amongst the Gentiles, were his major problem. Indeed, they completely frustrated his policy. Whilst the Jews remained true Jews, there was no hope of success and no hope of reunification. Their refusal to worship idols or even admit other gods, their rejection of Greek philosophy as something dirty and unclean, their food laws, their distinctive dress and conduct, their horror of intermarriage, it all spelt trouble for Antiochus IV. Indeed, to him, some of their objections were pure obstinacy and unreasonableness, the fantasy of narrow-mindedness. This was a challenge which Antiochus meant to answer and conquer. He was greatly encouraged by not a few Jews, children of God, ready to welcome his policy and co cooperate with him fully looking upon it as something enlightened. This made the others appear all the more unreasonable. 
Antiochus believed not only in the worship of the Greek gods, particularly of Zeus or Jupiter, but also in himself as the visible manifestation of Zeus on earth. His name Epiphanes means just manifestation, meaning God manifest. Rather interesting, isn't it? Antichrist, God manifest. Um, his plan was therefore, by every means possible, to eradicate Judaism and colonize the whole of Palestine with Hellenized people. He began by removing the godly high priest, replacing him with a Hellenist who was to carry out his policy in Judea. Shortly afterwards, he began to really put his plan into effect. In 168 BC, by royal decree, all the distinctive characteristics of God's children were to be removed. The law was publicly burned. An army of 20,000 entered Jerusalem on the Sabbath and profaned the temple. All services and sacrifices were forbidden. Nehemiah's walls were destroyed. Jerusalem was to be turned into a Greek city-state. Pagan altars were set up everywhere, and God's people had to participate in pagan rites on pain of death. In 167 BC, one year later, by royal decree, circumcision was forbidden, as Sabbath observance and even the reading of the law on pain of death. The land ran with the blood of the faithful. No one was spared, old or very young. Immoral orgies took place in the temple. Jews were forced to eat pork and other unclean foods. Toward the end of 167 BC, the persecution, the most devilish attempt in the whole history of God's people to systematically destroy them, culminated in the erection over the brazen altar of an altar to Jupiter, or Zeus, with a statue also. On this was offered pig. This was the abomination of desolation. It had become impossible to be a true child of God. You could not live. The alternatives were death or compromise. That was Antiochus. It's interesting to note here that many of these characteristics have reappeared again and again in history and led some Christians to believe that the Antichrist had already appeared. For example, Nero. There's absolutely no doubt that a very large number of the early Christians believed that Nero was the Antichrist. Then again, of course, coming near our own times, Hitler. <coughs> Of course, Jewish people naturally believed Hitler was the Antichrist because his name added up to 666. And many, many Christians thought that Hitler was the Antichrist. Don't forget, same characteristics. To try and unify the whole of Europe under a kind of Teutonic culture. To destroy what, uh, well, we could go on and on. The same with Stalin. Many people thought Stalin was the same thing. Same thing again, try to reunify a whole of the world under a certain kind of culture, proletariat. Culture, proletarian culture, and so on. Of course, uh, 
there are people today who naturally believe that Mao Zedong is uh, uh, like the Antichrist, because he almost seems to be God himself. His uh, little thoughts and words chanted as if they were scripture itself, worshipped as someone almost divine, and so we could go on. Now, don't scoff at this. It is to be expected. Insofar as these men are the devil's men, and in the measure in which the devil can control them and express himself in and through them, they are but pale foreshadowings of the Antichrist who is to come. And therefore, all the way down through history, you will see little Antichrists who seem sometimes as if they almost embody the prophecies concerning the one who is to come. They are but pale reflections of this man who is yet to be. Now, the zealots of Christ's day uh, believed that the abomination of desolation referred to the eagle standards used by the Roman army. The Roman armies used to have these huge standards with the imperial eagle on it. And then on top of the um, staff was always a, a statue of the, um, of the emperor, of the Caesar. And the zealots believed that the abomination of desolation was in fact these standards of the uh, Roman army. Uh, it is noteworthy that Luke, in his account, in Luke chapter 21, and um, uh, verse uh, 20, actually substitutes for abomination of desolation, he substitutes the word armies. Now this is very interesting. But when ye see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that her desolation is at hand. Then let them that are in Judea flee unto the mountains. Let them that are in the midst of her depart out. Luke clearly understood the abomination of desolation to refer to the armies. And of course, more than just the armies, to the leader of the armies who was to become the emperor, Titus. Um, certainly the church in Jerusalem understood it in this way, identifying the abomination of desolation with the Roman armies and Titus. When the disciples saw the abomination of desolation set up in the temple, those in Jerusalem and Judea were to flee to the, the most remote and inaccessible areas, not waiting for even a moment. They were not to go down into the house and take a bag or a purse or a coat. They were to get right out just like that. Never go back. Not even look in the door. Not collect anyone. Go straight out. Just like that. That, that means something. Oh, I know many Jewish people. Uh, this is only just an aside, nothing to do with this, but I know many Jewish people who were saved from the dreadful um, uh, years just before the war by simply walking out of their home, getting on a train, and going out. Not saying 
anything to anyone, coming out with just a few coins. They were saved. There was to be no spiritually unhurried placidity, no false faith that they would be preserved if they stayed where they were. Rather, it was a question of urgent, immediate, decisive leaving on the spot. Never forget that. Don't, uh, don't be more spiritual than the Lord Jesus. These are the words of the Lord. Never be more spiritual than the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus, when you see that, the other signs, stay put. Endure. Don't get flustered. Don't get bothered. Stay put. The, 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 they are the initial birth pangs. Don't go running hither and thither, getting panicky. But when you see this, get out. Don't even go back for a case. Don't collect anything. Don't take another coat. Just go straight out and get to the most inaccessible and remote area you can. So amazingly accurate was this prediction that when the Christians saw Titus and the Roman arm armies surrounding Jerusalem in the last phase of the siege in 70 AD, they took heed and fled in a body, and the whole church was preserved. Isn't it amazing? The whole church was preserved. They fled to a place called Bella, east of the River Jordan. That's a fact of history. Now, just look at the chapter again. Look at verse 14. Let the reader understand. Isn't that an extraordinary statement? Um, perhaps some of you are saying, oh, I don't know. I don't I'm I shall find it terribly complex. What are we going to know? How are we going to know? What is it going to be? What is the thing? Well, it says, when you see the abomination of desolation set up where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Now, God never says anything to mock us. God doesn't sort of say, let the reader understand, um, as a kind of useless little sort of a, appendix. When God says, let the reader understand, he means this. When you need to understand, and you're alert and alive and taking heed, the Holy Spirit will give you understanding. Don't worry, that's exactly what happened with the early church. When they were met together, somehow together, they suddenly understood, uh -uh, this is it, this is it, and they fled in a body, and the whole lot were preserved. When you think a million people died in, in, that, in that last terrible um, thing, it's a m marvelous that the Christians were pres preserved entire. How comforting that is. When God says, let the reader understand, he doesn't just mock us, because most of us say, well, I don't. <laughs> but when God says, let the reader understand, what he means is this trust in the Lord. Don't be dulled. Don't be apathetic. Don't just drift. But be alert and alive. And when the, don't panic. When the time comes, the Holy Spirit will reveal it to you. And you'll know with the other Christians, this is it. Secondly, verse 14. Uh, same verse. Let those who are in Judea 
flee unto the mountains. Isn't that wonderful? How explicit. Not let those who are in the Roman Empire, not let all those flee, but let those in Judea. In other words, that word the Lord Jesus said, so that all the other Christians throughout the Roman Empire, they didn't have to flee. And they didn't even have to, in one sense, get bothered. They could stay put. But those in Judea, let them flee. And uh, the other Christians didn't worry. <laughs> they stayed put because they were not in Judea. Now, the Lord is just wonderful in these ways. I, I, I'll come to that in a moment. Just mark it, will you, first. <clears throat> now, in spite of all this, let's just say that in spite of it being so amazingly accurate a prediction that the, Christ the church in Jerusalem was able to get out in a body, it is also as clear that this prophecy was not completely fulfilled in 70 AD and refers to the close of this age and the coming of Christ. Look at verse, for example, look at verse 19. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation until now and never will be. Well, that wasn't fulfilled then. Verse 20, if the Lord had not shortened the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Well, I mean, although a million people died in the siege of Jerusalem, um, in fact, you could hardly say no flesh would be saved. <laughs> it refers to something else. Look at verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. That did not happen in 70 AD. Verse 26, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. That didn't happen in 70 AD. So we have to say it was not completely fulfilled. For us then, the abomination of desolation is surely connected with the man of sin, the Antichrist. Now let's turn to 2 Thessalonians and see whether that doesn't throw a little bit of light upon it. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, from verse 3. Let no man beguile you in any wise, for it will not be except the falling away come first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. He that opposeth and exalteth himself against all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sitteth in the temple of God, setting himself forth as God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now ye know that which restraineth, to the end that he may be revealed in his own season. For the mystery of lawlessness doth already work, only there is one that restraineth now, until he be taken out of the way. And then shall be revealed the lawless one, whom the Lord Jesus shall slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to naught by the manifestation of his coming. Even he whose coming is according to the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceit of unrighteousness for them that perish, because they receive not love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God sendeth them a working of error, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be judged who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Well, now, I think 
we can say that the abomination of desolation is the Antichrist, the man of sin. And this verse is very interesting because it harks back to Antiochus Epiphanes, who went into the temple and said that he was God, that he was a manifestation of Zeus, and put these idol of Zeus and the altar of Zeus up in the temple of God. Now, we'll come again to that just in one, one moment. One other point. Whether what he does, the Antichrist does, his work and policies will have much to do with Judea and Jerusalem, again, as in 70 AD, and be connected with armies, we cannot at present dogmatically state. Although we do know that Jerusalem and Israel will be the touchstone of world politics and strife at the end. For instance, if you turn to Zechariah, we are told in Zechariah that at the very end, Zechariah 11, verse 2, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of reeling unto all the peoples round about, and upon Judah also shall it be in the siege against Jerusalem. And it will come to pass in that day that I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all the peoples. All that burden themselves with it shall be sore wounded. And all the nations of the earth shall be gathered together against it. And then it goes on about that. Chapter 14. Chapter 14 from verses 1 to 8. I won't read all of it. But I'll read this. Behold, verse 1, Behold, a day of the Lord cometh when they, thy spoils shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall be cut off from the earth. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fought in the day of battle, and his feet shall in that day stand upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem. Couldn't be clearer, could it? Turn over to one other example of this. Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16, verse 14. For they are spirits of demons, working signs, which go forth unto the kings of the whole world, to gather them together unto the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth, and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. And they gather them together unto the place which is called in Hebrew, Ha-Megeddon. Armageddon, we call it. Ha-Megeddon. Ha-Megiddo, which is, of course, the plain of Megiddo, which to this day still exists in Galilee. So we know that Jerusalem and Israel are going to be the touchstone of political strife and trouble right through to the end. Whether we can look from these verses, the mention of Judea and so on, and Jerusalem, to some uh, point at which Antichrist will have something to do with it, we cannot just now dogmatically state. It would be well for us to emphasize here the fact that many of the details in this discourse and in other passages to do with the coming again of the Lord Jesus, at present vague or meaningless. When that time comes near, will become meaningful to those 
who are walking with God and are led by the Spirit. So don't be afraid that we don't understand all these details of prophecy. What we're trying to do this evening is take out what is absolutely clear. Things like let those that are in Judea, we don't know whether that just was completely fulfilled in 70 AD and should be now spiritualized, or whether in fact it will have some very real meaning. But we will know this. When the time comes, many of these things that seem vague and abstract and meaningless